You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Well, I am really excited to share with you a word today, and the biggest point I want to make in all of this is that the Lord listens to the cries of his people. The Lord listens to the cries of his people. And we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 2 to get there. Now, I understand that you've been going through the book of Genesis over the last little while, and you're going to take a break and go to 1 John, but then you go back and pick up Genesis a little bit later. And I think that so much of what's happening in Genesis plays out into Exodus. Did you know that? These two books go together. They flow right together. And there's so many of the themes and so many of the references in Genesis are going to come into play in Exodus. We'll see a couple of those in a minute. But I think that when I get into great books like Genesis and Exodus, one of the things that strikes me is the power of a story. Man, do we love stories. We're, we're wired for stories. And when you get totally captured by, a, say, a novel, it's a great thing. I don't know if, if you've had this happen to you of late. I love it when I get into a book and I can't wait to get done with work or done with whatever I'm doing so I can get back to that book. It's not like I'm just struggling because I bought the book and now I feel obligated to finish it. It's not that. It's that I am so into the story, I can't wait to devour it, and then I'm sad when I'm done. Have you had that experience? That's when you know a book really captured you. So I just completed, for the second time in my life, The Lord of the Rings. And so my head is full of those images. And I want to encourage reading. I want to encourage that. And you know, especially the younger people, and especially our younger men, You need to get a book. And I understand, I have more books in this thing than I can carry around. I get it. But man, there's something about a book that you pick up, that's got pages that you turn, that you can smell, all that stuff. And to get into a great book, I encourage it. Well, we're into a great story here in Exodus, and I hope that these kinds of stories would capture your heart. Jordan Peterson recently put out a video series some presentations on the book of Exodus, and I haven't seen it, I haven't read, I haven't watched it, but in one of the promotional clips, he says this, it turns out that a book is more durable than stone. It's more durable than a castle, and it's more durable than an empire. And that is so true. The Egyptian empire is dust, and the pharaohs are not even named. But here is this text we have that tells this great story, and it's part of our story. It's our origin story. It tells who we are, our background, our family history. You know, one of the things I love about the the hymns we sang today is that these hymns span time and they span the globe. I've been all over the world and I've heard these hymns sung, and I'm a little bit older, and so I've heard these hymns my whole life. And so what these great hymns do is they connect us to people around the world and over time. And I look around here and I see the variety of God's creation just on the faces of everybody here. And so this story here, no matter where you come from, no matter what your your religious or what your ethnic or cultural background is, 
This story connects us all together as part of the same family. And so when we walk in here and we acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, we say, ah, new family. You're my brother. You're my sister. We're all part of the same group. Amen? Isn't that fantastic? And so that's one of the powers of a story like this. It's been around for 2,000 years, and in 2,000 years from now, this story will still be here. Now, in chapter 1 of Exodus, we see how God's people, Israel, had gotten into Egypt. And when you go back into Genesis, that's the part that you're going to really pick up. You're going to see, well, how did God's people get in Egypt in the first place? And the rest of Genesis tells that whole story. Well, they got into Egypt with 70 people. And now it's 400 years later. And they are a multitude and they are scaring the king of Egypt. When Joseph first got into Egypt, the Pharaoh raised him up. The Pharaoh loved him. The Pharaoh gave him and his family great land. It was a very friendly relationship. Things have gone south in that relationship between the Pharaoh. It's a different Pharaoh, of course. But the office of the Pharaoh has turned and turned against God's people. So in verse 10, in Exodus chapter 1 here, we read that the Pharaoh is concerned and he says, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply and if war breaks out and joins our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Well, you know from the title of the book, that's all going to happen. Exodus means going out. (laughs) So they are going to escape. Everything the Pharaoh just was worried about here, that's going to happen. So he says, let's deal shrewdly with them. Can you think back into the book of Genesis about another figure that comes along and is crafty and is clever and is shrewd and is going to take God's people and try to fool them, try to be shrewd with them? Can you think of any character like that? Because it's the exact same word that is used for the serpent when he wanted to deal shrewdly with Eve. See what I'm talking about? These, these things that occur in Genesis and then reappear here in Exodus. That's one of them. So the Pharaoh is going to try to limit the growth of these people. It's interesting, in chapter 1, we get the word multiply four times. The people are multiplying. They're just multiplying. They're just multiplying. And this is scaring the Pharaoh. He is worried about this. So he goes to plan A. And that's harsh treatment, ruthless, bitter service. But the more he oppressed them, the more they did what? Multiplied. That didn't work. So he went to plan B, which was call the midwives. That didn't work out. Pharaoh is this guy who's going to be shrewd, and he calls the midwives, and he tells them something horrific. He tells them that whenever a boy is born to kill the child... Well, these midwives, they're smarter than the Pharaoh, and they just don't do it. They fear God more than they fear the Pharaoh, so they just disobey. They just say, forget that. We're not doing that. And when Pharaoh confronts them, they say, Pharaoh, we don't know what to do because these Hebrew women are so uh, vigorous that they have the baby before we can even get there. What can you do? You know, you Egyptian women, yeah, they're not quite as vigorous, and so, you know, they're not having the babies as fast. But the Hebrew women are just too strong. Pharaoh, I don't know what we are. Brilliant. The women are brilliant. And by the way, those two ladies are named in verse 15, Shipra and Pua. 
They get named, and so we know them. The Pharaoh, we don't even know his name. Isn't that that genius? Isn't that genius storytelling? That those two ladies who would be totally forgotten otherwise are remembered for all of history, for their shrewdness, for for outsmarting the Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh goes to plan C, and that is where all the Egyptians are told, whenever you see a baby Hebrew boy, to throw him in the Nile. This is horrific. There's, there's no way to put a, a, a positive or a, a funny light on this. This is just awful news. And imagine the Nile River, which is the source of life. If you look at a map of Egypt, you see the Nile, and then you can see where the population is. The population is all along the Nile River. The Nile River is critical for their agriculture, for their life, for everything. And that place of life, that life-giving river, becomes becomes a source of death. And of course, in the biblical context, water always symbolizes death. You know from Genesis chapter 1 that the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the chaotic water at the creation, that darkness, that dark, chaotic place. And then the flood. The flood was a devastating wipeout of creation. And then you think of Jonah, Jonah bouncing around on the waves on this boat. And the, the, the conclusion is, well, let's just toss him into the water. Can you imagine there's nothing worse for the Hebrew mindset than to be taken and thrown overboard into a boat and then eaten by a monster, by a sea monster? And then you can just think about so many other, storm, other uh, issues with water all the way to the time Jesus calmed the storm. Jesus calming the storm wasn't just a neat trick. That was saying that Jesus is the one who overcomes that darkness of death that the waters represent. And no wonder in the new creation, there'll be no more sea, which I think is kind of weird. I grew up on the West Coast. I love the ocean and think no more ocean, no more sea in the new creation. Yeah, we won't need one. There will be no sea. All of that is gone in the new creation. And so here, this idea of throwing the Hebrew baby boys into the water is absolutely horrific. And what's going on here? Because one of the things we know from the book of Genesis is that after the man and woman rebelled, the Lord cursed the snake and the woman and the man, but he gave this promise that from your seed, woman, will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. And so we are reminded that God made a promise and we expect this promise to go throughout history and at one day there will become one who will come along and will save his people. But this can't be the plan. How could this possibly be the plan? All looks lost. But remember, God sees and God knows. And the Lord listens to the cry of his people. And so we have a simple two-part plan to this message. God prepares his man, and God hears his people. So it turns out that so far, the Pharaoh has been completely thwarted by all these women in the story. The midwives are more shrewd than him, and now more women are going to come into play to ruin his efforts. So let's go to chapter two here. That was all a setup. That's all free of charge, uh, not charging against my time. Here we go. We're in chapter two. And we're going to pick up the story and see how God prepares his man, first of all, in the house of Pharaoh. Let's read together. Exodus two, verse one. 
Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him in a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister, Moses' sister, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket and the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens, and he saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? The man answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill us the way you killed that Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Well, a few things here. I want you to notice as we go through this passage, the seeing. There's going to be uh, several times when somebody sees something, and I think that's pivotal. Notice here, first of all, that the mother conceived and bore a son, and she saw that he was a fine child. So she hid him for a while, but it just wasn't, she wasn't going to be able to keep a, a lid on this forever. And so she took him and put him in a basket. Do you know, does anybody here know what that word basket is? It's going back into Genesis again. A clue is how it was constructed. A basket made of bulrushes and daubed with bitumen and pitch. Have you heard this term bitumen and pitch before relative to putting somebody in a watercraft? No, in the ark. This word right here, basket, is the same word that we use and that we read in Genesis for ark. Noah, uh, Moses is being placed into a tiny little ark. And he's going to be born on that ark over water, and that is going to save him. Do you see that again? There's an echo back to Genesis. This is Moses' own little ark flood story. But it's also looking forward because we know that Moses is going to lead his people through the Red Sea, which is also called, if you look at, Red, at the Red Sea uh, notice in your Bible, you'll see a little number there usually, and it'll take you down to the bottom of the page, and it'll say, or Sea of Reeds. Here is a little foreshadowing here. Moses is being taken through the reeds like he is going to take his people through the reeds later when the actual exodus happens. See what I'm talking about? The power of a story and the ingeniousness of the biblical writers. 
This is ingenious literature here. It's just fantastic. And when we get into the little nitty-gritty, we go, oh, that's wonderful. And that's why I want to emphasize everybody needs to put the screens down once in a while and pick up a book and read it. It's fantastic. All right, enough of that old man pitch stuff that I'm talking about there. This, though, like I mentioned, cannot be the plan. How does this work that a mother would take her child and put him in a basket on a river and just give it a little push? I mean, that's an amazing story. And once again, we say, this just can't be the plan. I've been thinking about a lot of the people lately who have had their flights canceled. You know, we make our plans and then who knows. On my last two overseas trips, we were up in the air at 35,000 feet and then you're doing your thing, maybe you're reading a book or you're watching a movie or whatever it is and you hear this voice come on. Wait, what did he just say? Mechanical problems? We're two hours into this flight and we're going back to our airport of origin? Yeah, happened twice in the fall. We got back on the road again. I was going on my way to Vietnam. Another time I was going on my way to India and both times, And then you start thinking, okay, if I'm going back to Newark, New Jersey, I'm not going to make my connection out of London. I'm going to miss my first day in India. Cool. I've got everything laid out. I've got plans. I've got hotel reservations. I've got people I'm going to meet. And now that's all been blown apart. And that's a minor thing relatively. Once you're through it and past, I mean, it's very stressful when you're in it. But once you're through it and you're past it, now you just have a story to tell. So that's a relatively minor problem to go through. But we have major issues like that in our own lives, don't we? We have plans, we have hopes, we have dreams, we have things that we see, things that we hope are going to work out, and they often just get blown apart. And we say, Lord, this can't be the plan. This can't be it. How hard some of these things can be. Things often don't go as planned. But we need to remind ourselves that God is in control. And I can't always see it, and I can't always feel it, and I don't always like it. But God is in control. You know, if you flip over, you might not even have to turn a page, but if you go to the very last chapter of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 20, this really wraps up the whole story of Joseph and all that happened to him, how he was betrayed by his brothers and sent off to Egypt, and who knows what was going to happen. And in Genesis 50, 20, he says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring, about, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So when we say this can't be the plan, well, it actually could be the plan. It doesn't look obvious to us. It doesn't look like it's going to work out for us. But yeah, it, it could be the plan. This could be the way God wants it all along. So, the mother of Moses saw that he was a fine child. And then in verse 5, in the middle of the verse, we notice that the daughter of the Pharaoh, she sees the basket of the reeds there, the basket in the reeds there. And what an amazing deal. She says... I'm not going to do what my dad wants me to do with this child. Because what they should do is just flip that basket over and let the baby die. She says, no, bring that child to me. And then in God's fantastic providence, Moses' big sister is hanging out. She's just kind of standing back there. And when she sees what's going on, she has a proposal 
for the Pharaoh's daughter. Hey, do you want me to find a midwife for you? Yeah, find someone to nurse this baby. And her daughter says, I think I might have somebody. The baby's real mother, who is now going to be paid out of the house of the Pharaoh to raise her own child. Genius. That's brilliant. And so Moses, his name means drawn out of the water. And again, a replay of Noah and the ark. How about that for a plan? All right. So Moses is now raised in the house of Pharaoh. And we're going to think about how Moses was particularly well suited for the task that God would give him. And that's actually part A, that he was brought up in the Pharaoh's house. Now look at the second part of this, verse 11. Moses had grown up. He went out to his people. So Moses has got some kind of understanding that these Hebrews are his people. He seems to know that. And notice that he sees something. He saw an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrew people. And Moses has a high justice factor. He can't stand injustice, and so he acts. This could be impulsive on the part of Moses. I take it more, it shows Moses' character. It shows, it's telling us who Moses is and what he's like. He's the kind of person who's gonna take a risk. He's the kind of person who's gonna act in defense of somebody when they're being unjustly treated. That's how I take it. I could be wrong about that. Maybe that was Moses diverting from God's plan. I don't know, but whatever it is, it drives him into the desert. And let's see what happens when he goes out into the desert. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled it, filled the troughs to, to water their father's flock. When the shepherds came, the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them. Interesting terminology, isn't it? Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Notice again the language, an Egyptian delivered us. The father said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zephorah. And she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Here is Moses being prepared in the desert. Again, Moses' high justice meter kicks in. He's there. He's seeing these seven young ladies trying to look after their sheep and these bad guys, these shepherds come along. And what does Moses say? That's not okay. I wonder if any of you have, I saw a whole bunch of kids here this morning. Do you have a child that has a high justice meter? What do they often say? That's not fair. <laughs> well, good on them. It's good to have a high justice meter. As parents, we may need to control that. We may need to shape that. We may need to direct that a little bit. But here is an impulse of Moses to act on the behalf of other people. And again, it might look impulsive, but I think we're being set up to see the kind of person Moses is. He saved them. He delivered them. Hmm. Hmm. Well, how well prepared was Moses 
for what God would ask him to do. Spoiler alert, in chapter three, God's gonna say, hey Moses, I want you to walk into Pharaoh's office and I want you to tell him to let all these people go. Was Moses prepared to do that? Look over quickly to Acts chapter seven. Acts chapter seven, there's a ton we could make of this, but we won't, we'll just look very quickly at it. In Acts chapter seven, Stephen is giving a speech and he makes reference to Moses. Uh, partway through, he says, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Acts 7.22, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Stephen goes on to talk more about what happened to, Mo to Moses there. But Moses was perfectly placed. See, he understood the halls of power in Egypt. He grew up in there. He was comfortable there. He also understood what it's like out in the desert. By the way, he spent 40 years in each place. So when Moses needs to take people across the desert and navigate all that, he knows the, he knows the landscape. He understands that life. We say, this can't be the plan. Actually, it could be the plan. This could be God all along orchestrating things just the way he wants it. God prepares his man. God also hears his people. Remember, I said at the beginning, it's been 400 years. And the pressure is ratcheting up. It hasn't been terrible all the time, but of late, it's getting worse on the people. The Egyptian taskmasters are making life harder and harder for them, asking more and more of them. And their cry is going up. And God is hearing their cry. Look at verse 23. Here it is. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw, and the people of, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So, <clears throat> we're told several times in chapter one that the people of Israel just multiplied. They just grew and grew and grew. And that's part of the promise that was made and promised the part of the uh, mandate that was put to the man and the woman to be fruitful and multiply. By the way, do a little study of that phrase, be fruitful and multiply, through Genesis and Exodus, and you'll see again a theme that just bounces all the way through this multiplication. Now, I was thinking recently, so my dad was the only son in his immediate family, and his larger family didn't have, uh, it was a very rather small family. So my dad was, uh, his name, last name was Young, and then I was the only son in, in our immediate family. And not a, not a lot of other Youngs out there, of course, in, in our immediate circles in our larger family. And so when I got married and my wife and I started having kids, I was thinking about this just a little bit, like I hope I have a son and that'll carry on our family name. But I didn't, we had four daughters. And so my, my dad died about a year ago and so I'm kind of in this weird moment where I think I'm the last young in our, not, of course there's lots of people named young and maybe I'm related to them, but I'm the last young in our larger extended family. And I think, oh, that's a little sad. Except that we had four daughters and they have all been 
fruitful at an alarming rate. So I have five grandsons, no, sorry, I have nine grandsons, five and under. And then two little girls were brought into that. None of these people have my last name. But my goodness, there's multiplication happening. And we had a little family dilemma today because there's a big football game on that I want to watch and we've been invited over. And so I'm going to have all these people making all this noise and I won't be able to hear the commentary of the football game. Ay, ay, ay. But every once in a while, when we're all together, the whole tribe, there'll be maybe, maybe these guys are all sent down to the basement and they're all down there tearing the place to pieces. I call them the sons of thunder. The theme of our family is we build it and then we break it. That's what we do. And so the kids are all downstairs playing so that I can at least take in something of the football game, right? Don't you feel bad for me about this? No, I know you don't. But inevitably, there'll be a bang and a crash and then someone will cry. And what's kind of fun to do, because I, I don't know who's crying, I can't recognize the cries, but you look immediately to the mothers and the mothers instantly know. And they'll go, no, not my kid, who cares? <laughs> that literally is true. But the one whose child it is that's crying, and down they are. Because parents, they know the cries of their children. They've got it. And God knows the cries of his children. And he hears it. Do you see it there? During those many days, the king of Egypt died and another one came. That's okay. Uh, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. We understand that. Doesn't really change anything except it just gets worse. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. He heard it. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And he saw people of Israel and this is the one I love and God knew that's all I have to say to you today whatever you're into whatever's going on whatever's hard God knows God knows the name for God here is uh, in, in the Hebrew language is Elohim and when you put the I am on the back of a Hebrew word that makes it plural God's name is plural not because there's many gods but because he is so awesome that he has to be put into the plural that, that's how big that's how grand that's how majestic that's how wonderful that's how strong that's how powerful he is he's in the plural Elohim heard their groaning Elohim remembered his covenant Elohim saw his people and Elohim knew and my message for you today is that God Knows, And one of the most important words we have here is this word covenant. He remembered his covenant. Covenant is God's commitment to keep his promises. It's his covenantal memory here. When you see the God of Abraham with Isaac and Jacob, we're reminded that's the God that is behind me. That's the God that laid the foundation, that built the story over time that I'm now enjoying the, the, the benefits of. He remembers something. It means to take something from the, from the front burner. It means some, to take something, put it on the front burner, and act on it. This term, remember, appears 25 times in Genesis. And now we're told in Exodus that God is remembering. The author of the Jesus Story Bible book, Sally Lloyd-Jones, put it this way. 
that a covenant is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's a great way to put that. We can think of some of the key covenants. Scholars think about how many covenants there are. Let's just jump on these. There's the covenant with Noah that God made after the flood. He said there'll be no more floods. And what was the sign for that? It was the rainbow. So when you see a rainbow, you can think, that, that's God's promise. That's about God's promise. <clears throat> Another covenant with was Abraham, told that he would have a huge family and lots of land. And the sign for that was the sign of circumcision, a mark on the body. Moses was given a covenant. He was told that they would, his people would be a kingdom of priests and would share the blessings with all nations. Later in the Old Testament, David would be given a covenant. That would be a promise that a great descendant would come from his line and would be the king and the ruler of all people. And then Jesus gives a covenant. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Matthew chapter 26. Here's a passage that if you've been around churches a long time, particularly on Communion Sunday, you've heard this before. <clears throat> and I want to remind you of this so next time you have communion, you can think, oh right, this idea of covenant, it goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, and now Jesus burst forth as the fulfillment of that. Matthew 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink, all, drink of it, all of you. For this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, you will not drink of it again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Now there's a certain sense as Jesus in that moment is heading to the cross and we might say, wait, 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 wait. No. Like Peter, the cross, that can't be the plan. Remember when Jesus told his disciples that he was gonna go to the cross and die and Peter stepped up and said, no, 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 Jesus, <laughs> that's not happening. All that kingdom stuff, all that throne stuff, yeah, but not this cross stuff. And Peter's problem was that he could see Jesus on a throne, but he couldn't see him on a cross. That can't be the plan. Well, it turned out it was the plan, wasn't it? That was the deal. And it's a shocking plan. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. We read earlier, we, we had earlier on the, on the, on the wall a, a passage very similar from Hebrews 10. But Hebrews 9, in verse 14, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is the plan. Think about Moses. He just happens to be discovered by the daughter of the Pharaoh. Of all the people that went out that day, it was her. And it so happens that he was given to his own mother as his nurse. 
And it so happens that he was raised in the house of Pharaoh, so he knows and understands all how that culture operates. And it so happens that he spent 40 years in the desert so he knows how to function in that environment. And that was all part of the plan. And we can take courage from this today. We can take courage that God is the one who orchestrates and understands history. And he orchestrated you and he understands you. And he has a plan for you and it's not always gonna be easy. Some of it's gonna be really hard. And when we're in the middle of that, we're not gonna make sense of it. We're gonna say, this, Lord, this can't be it. But the encouragement from this ancient text, the, the empire of the Egyptians is gone from history. It's dust. This book is still here. And the encouragement to you is to hold on to the message of this book. Hold on to the author of this book. Hold on to the word that is told about in this book, who is Jesus Christ. And the ministry of this church, and I know this is the foundational function of this church, is to tell this good news and to make this amazing invitation. All of us, as human beings, are fallen. That happened in Genesis chapter three when our first parents fell, when they rebelled against the Lord. We've got that in us, this rebellious spirit. And we were going in this direction as rebels. We were walking along this path, our own path, and then by God's grace, we got grabbed. And we turned around, and that's repentance. When you, when you repent, you turn away from your rebellion. But you don't just turn away from something, you turn towards something. So you're going this way, you turn away from your rebellion, and you turn towards the grace. You turn towards Jesus Christ. You go to his love. You go to his lordship, and you submit to that. And then you enter into the fellowship of a family of God. And you go on from there. And that is how you become a Christian. Repentance and belief. Jesus talked about that when he first started on the shores of the Galilee. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here. That's the call of this church. That's what we are a part of. That's the story that we're telling, that we're involved in. So take courage today. Take courage today from this ancient text, this ancient story, that God hears. God remembers. God sees. And amen, God knows. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace in our lives. We'd be dead without it. We thank you again for the rich blessing that you've given to our lives. We'd be so poor without it. And thank you for this story and thank you for where it goes. It goes all the way from Moses and makes a direct line to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that each one of us would take courage from this. And I pray that if there's anybody here who hasn't taken that step of repentance and belief that they would today, that they would submit themselves to you. There is no king on earth that is more powerful than you. Exodus tells that story. Exodus completely dismantles the Pharaoh and shows him to be weak and meaningless. But you are strong and you're everything. 
I pray that anyone here who's questioning this would submit themselves to you and go on a path, on a journey, where they enter into the family of God forever and enjoy your fruits. Thank you, Father, for the work that you're doing in this church, for the work you're doing in the lives of individuals and families. Pray a rich blessing upon each one who is here. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.